I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So the guys have some. So they make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And they'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at Hebrews 12. And that's our gift to you. Bring it back with you every Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Hebrews 12. When our girls were in high school, our family would usually attend the annual play that the school's drama team would put on. And it was really amazing to see those young people and all of their talents on display. They would invariably provide a marvelous performance. And then afterwards, our family would spend a good bit of time going on about each of the young people and their parts and expressing our astonishment at their abilities. Now, similarly, picture a group of people in the foyer of a theater after a performance. And there's a type of chatter about the play and those who were in it. Or perhaps you're coming out of a baseball game with your family or friends and your team is one and you're all trying to get a word in about who made the best play and you're just recounting the whole game and what the various players did. Or you've just come from a class reunion and having reacquainted with people that you haven't seen for years, you're informed about their lives and all that they've accomplished and you're impressed and you're grateful and perhaps humbled all at the same time. That the each of end of these, at the end of the theatrical performance, the sporting event, the class reunion, at the end of each, you and the others are talking about the exploits of the various participants, and yet someone in the group says, isn't he amazing? As you're in the foyer at the theater and you ask who that is, which one are you talking about? Is it the guy who had the lead role? Or you're on your way out of the baseball game and amidst all the clamor about all the players and all the plays in the game, someone says, isn't he amazing? And you say, who? Who are you talking about? Are you talking about the starting pitcher? Or as you recount with classmates the night at your reunion and all that you heard and someone says, isn't she amazing? And again, you say, who? The gal who wrote several novels and became a famous author? In each of these, there are multiple participants And yet at the end, somebody says, isn't he amazing or isn't she amazing? In answer to your question, who at the theater, the answer is it's the director because he had to put it all together and he had to know what it was supposed to look like before any of those multiple actors had any clue before they played their own part. To be sure, they were all responsible for their own role, but they wouldn't be there and they couldn't have done that without the director. And when you asked who is so amazing after the game, the answer comes back, the coach. Because he had to pull all the various players together and make sure that they could be more than they thought they could. He saw what they could become, he gave them the tools and the training they needed, and he got them where they needed to go. And as you think about your classmates and what many have become, and someone says, isn't she amazing, and you ask who, the answer is that consensus favorite teacher who took personal interest in her students and inspired them to become all they could be. Well, that's now, as we approach Hebrews 12, where we find ourselves. Like those in the theater foyer or leaving the baseball game or at the end of our class reunion. Because we just read chapter 11. And we're amazed at the various players in that chapter known as Faith's Hall of Fame. And we might well expect to be told 
to look to them then as our examples. Look to Enoch and Abraham and Moses and David and so on. But after having told us about the accomplishments of all of these people, at the end of it, the writer of Hebrews asks, isn't he amazing? And who is that? Chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. This morning, we want to see why. Although it is the case that we have such a great number of testimonies from the lives of God's people given in chapter 11, why is it that Jesus is the one we are to look to as we run the race that the Lord has assigned to us. Let's pray now and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for allowing us to worship you in song and through giving and through prayer and now through the proclamation of your word. We ask you, Lord, to quiet our hearts and calm our minds so that we can focus our attention on what you tell us, make application of your truth to our lives, leave here, better equipped to serve you than we came. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, today we conclude a mini-series that we've been in to start the new year titled Body Life 2020 Vision. And in it, we've reviewed our church's mission statement. We've offered some information on where we are in our plans to move the Lord's work forward. And we've stressed the importance of full participation as attenders become members and as each member uses her time and talent and treasure for the biblical mission. In this final message, I want us to see how it is that each of us is to run the individual race that is our Christian lives. Because, friends, the church's progress will only be as good as its members' individual growth. The church will never be any better than the sum of its parts. So we need to be clear on how each of us can play our part play our position, accomplish godly goals, and that's first and only we're going to see by looking to Jesus. Now, we have an outline in today's program, as we do each week. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out so that you can follow along. And you'll notice that the first few points in that outline are in gray, and that's because I began this message last Sunday, and I thought last Sunday would be the last message in this series, but alas, I didn't finish. I was just going to leave it unfinished and resume our series in the book of Revelation this morning, but some have prevailed upon me to take another week to conclude this message. Next week, we will resume our series, God Wins, in the book of Revelation. And last week, we saw that the first word in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, it points back to what precedes. What that verse says is based on what was said prior to it. And what's prior to it is chapter 11, as I've said, known as Faith's Hall of Fame, because it lists numerous people from the first part of your Bible who live for God because of their genuine belief in him. So it says over and over the words by faith, 
By faith, Noah, and then it tells us what Noah did. And by faith, Abraham, and then tells us what he did. And by faith, Joseph, and what he accomplished. And by faith, Moses, and by faith, the children of Israel in the army of Jericho, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And after all of that, we come to chapter 12, and it says, therefore. Therefore, as we live our lives today, we should be motivated by the lives of those who've gone before. But the ultimate motivation is from the Lord Jesus himself. And that's why the outline says, as we saw last week, Jesus provides motivation that should lead us to action. And we saw two of those actions last week, that we should be motivated to remove hindrances because verse 1 says, We should throw off everything that hinders. And everything that hinders means any weight that keeps you from running the race as efficiently as you could and should. And we saw that the Greek word that's translated everything that hinders is onkos. We get oncology from it. Cancer. A mass. A tumor that shouldn't be there. It's something unnecessary that weighs you down for purposes of the race, and it needs to be cut out. It needs to be excised. Now, note these unnecessary things, as we saw last week, are not always sinful in themselves. It says we are to throw off everything that hinders, verse 1, and the sin. And that's important. Because these things that hinder may not be sinful in themselves. They're just unnecessary weights as we run the race. So there's the unnecessary stuff and there's the sin, both, that keep us from running as we ought. And that's why we say second in the outline, we should be motivated to remove temptations. Verse 1 says, throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. It says the sin. Not just sin in general, the sin. And what is the sin that entangles us? Well, in the context of the book of Hebrews, and especially chapters 11 and 12, the sin is lack of faith, failure to believe. You'll remember that the word faith in your Bible and the word belief in your Bible are both the same Greek word. So when it says in chapter 11, by faith they did all of these things, it's by believing in God and God's character and God's promises That they did all these things. And the sin that entangles us then is failure to believe God. Behind every sin, behind every last sin is a failure in some way to believe God. So we should be motivated to remove hindrances and temptations. And we should be motivated to move forward. When verse 1 tells us... To run the often agonizing race of the Christian life with, it says, perseverance. It refutes a very common notion that many people have in Christian circles. Let go and let God. It's a passive approach to the Christian life that so many people take. You're trying too hard. You're putting too much effort into it. Just relax and let his power take over your life. Kick back and somehow God will do everything for you. But hear this, friends. Christ has provided all that we need to run the race. But he demands and he deserves that we use what he's given to get in and actually run the race. And so we endure the pain. Because he and the end goal are worth it. 
We play through the pain, as it were, because that goal is worth it. And verse 1 says, this is the race that is, notice, quote, marked out for us. So who marked your path and my path out for us? Who placed us on the particular track that we're on? The obvious answer is the Lord himself. God knows the end of the path because he's marked it out for us. And friends, we are not alone. Others have passed this way before and they've completed the task. There are things on our path, different paths to the same destination, different circumstances along that path to the same destination for each of us. And there are some things on the path that you can't change. And unless you see the path as, verse 1 says, marked out for you, you'll mark out your own path and you'll move toward disaster. Unless you see the circumstances you are in as part of the race that is marked out for you personally by your loving God, then you'll take matters into your own hands, you'll try to create your own, And you'll move toward disaster. To be sure, there are some things you can change. I can change in the lives that we're assigned. We can change our career. We can change our geographic location. But there are some things you cannot. Now hear me carefully, friends. You can't change your spouse. Okay? Now we chuckle at that. But there are are people in this room who are not pleased with their marriage. And as a result of not being pleased with something that God has given and you are not authorized to change, you are as a result not running the race that God has marked out for you. And so you're saying to yourself, if only I had a different spouse. If only, if only, if only. Friends, this this is the race God has marked out for you. And he doesn't give you the option to change that. Your spouse, your children, perhaps it's a chronic health problem. And to the extent that we forget that these are marked out for us, to that extent we'll seek to create our own disobedient path. And you'll leave your spouse physically or emotionally. Maybe you won't leave the house, you'll just check out. Or you'll neglect your children's spiritual well-being. Or you'll become angry and despondent due to your health struggles. The readers of this letter were in danger of faltering. In chapter 5, in verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says that by this time you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food, he says. One preacher has said they made a profession of faith and then they went into passive coasting mode. This is utterly wrong. God means every Christian to be moving forward to new gains of strength and wisdom and holiness and courage and joy to go from getters to givers, from being taught to teaching. So Jesus provides motivation that should lead us to action. And I say in the outline, he provides an example that should lead us to imitation. Verse 2, we fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
in running the race and in running it for the long haul and through the difficulty, friends, we're simply following what Jesus did. And no servant is above his or her master. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, why look to Jesus to run our race? Well, the goal of this race is Jesus. Do you know when you finish the race? When you're like Jesus. That's why Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, God predestined us to this, to be conformed to the image of his Son. The race is for us to day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, through all of the the obstacles, the difficulties we endure, we run with perseverance so that we become more and more like Jesus. Ultimately, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is, the Bible says. So do you think like Jesus does? Do you talk like Jesus does? Do you act like Jesus does? I know the answer to that for all of you because I know the answer to that for myself. The answer is no. And because the answer is no, that means we all still have some running to do. But we cannot, we cannot, we cannot coast. We will inevitably, if we belong to God, if we belong to Christ, if we're children of his, we will finish our race. But although the outcome is inevitable, it is not automatic. It's inevitable, but it's not automatic. You don't go on autopilot. You're part of it. You're part of getting from here to there. And you actively engage in it. Friends, never forget, God ordains the means as well as the ends, as as well as the, the ends, as well as the means to those ends. God ordains what's going to happen, but he also ordains how it's going to happen. And God has ordained that how it happens in the race of the Christian life is that we run and we run with perseverance and we endure. This focus upon Jesus is what the entire book of Hebrews is about, starting with the very first verse of Hebrews, which says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. This is in keeping with what you see in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter and, and John and James. And they saw him in his glory as he will be when he returns, as he is now, and we will see him. They got a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Bible says that a voice was heard from heaven that said this, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the prophet of all prophets. You listen to him now. But why Jesus over the prophets and over everyone else? Well, because although he was fully human and although one of his titles is son of God, he did not come into existence like every other son does because he is God the son. And so the next verse in Hebrews chapter 1 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and He's the exact representation of His being. So why Jesus? Because He's God. And God made us in His image. And He is now remaking us into His image. And the race marked out for you is part of that. So it's centered on Jesus, God the Son. 
He's the one to whom we look. And in chapter 2, as the writer of Hebrews talks about the failure of humanity to live up to God's design for us, he says this, even though we don't see humanity living as it was designed to, we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. And that's God's goal for us. And the entire book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus to everyone else. Hebrews teaches he's superior to angels. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to every priest who had gone before him. And in fact, he put an end to a formal priesthood. And he is, Hebrews tells us, our high priest to whom we can go directly. We don't have to go through anyone else. We go directly to him. He's superior to every king. He's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. But this one who is all of that is one who lived and suffered and was tempted and died so that he is our model. He is the one we imitate. And we look away. We look away from everyone and everything else and we look to Jesus as we run the race, his image as the goal of that race. Look to Jesus. He's our model. Look to what Jesus cares about so that you're not distracted from the race. When it says fixing our eyes on Jesus, that phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus, is literally in Greek, look away to Jesus. Look away to Jesus. And this is what it means. It means you have to turn away from others and other stuff and look to Jesus. And that turning away from others and other stuff is required because our gaze is captured so often by other and lesser stuff. Friend, you will not run the race as it's marked out for you. If you are distracted by the lesser persons and things of the world and not fixed upon Jesus, does Jesus care About your golf score? Does he care about your tan? Does Jesus care how exotic your next vacation is? I don't mean to just pick on golfers or tanning people. You could fill the list with all kinds of just lesser stuff, couldn't you? Friends, I'm convinced we must, we must Put these things away if we are going to be effective in what doing what God cares about in running the race. Now, in order to be effective in your life, you're going to have to rest. And so I recommend, if you're able to, take a vacation. But hear this, but instead of playing to live, and in particular, instead of playing to live for Christ, too many of us just live to play. And Jesus provides an example that should lead us to imitation. We should, we say in the outline, imitate his endurance. His endurance. Verse 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, endured, that word endured in verse 2 is the same word as persevere in verse 1. So he endured the cross. He persevered the cross just like we're told to persevere in the race that's marked out for us. You could substitute those words in verse one. Verse one, you could say, endure in the race that's marked out 
for you. It means this. The word means to bear up under the circumstances that you are placed in. And remember, it's the path that he's marked out for you. There are some of those circumstances that you can't change, but you are called to bear up under those and to become more and more like Christ in the midst of those. Now, how did Jesus do that? How did he endure? Verse 2 says it's because of the joy set before him and the confidence that he had that at the end of verse 2, he would arrive as an appointed designation to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. So one commentator asks, where did he find his joy in running such a difficult faith race? Why would he endure the shame, endure the cross, and have joy at the same time? Because he saw past that to the goal of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the model of faith because he sees past the horrendous persecution and the horrendous suffering, far worse than any of us would endure. He saw through that to the very end. His joy in the race was that he could see through the suffering, through the agony, through the shame, to the reign on the right hand of the Father. Jesus said when he walked the earth, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You see, friends, in the midst of the difficulty and all of the stuff, in the race marked out for you, like Jesus, you can have joy in the midst of it. Joy doesn't mean you're happy about what's going on, right? Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's not happy about having to. It doesn't mean that. It means this, as I've told you over and over, joy in Scripture means this. It's an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. It's an abiding sense of delight that God is at work, and Jesus knew that, that God was at work, and God was at work through all of what he was going through, and God is at work in the midst of all you are going through. But if you replace the goal with something other than Jesus and you try to mark out your own path, then you'll live a disobedient life and move, as I said, toward disaster. We should imitate Jesus' endurance, and I say in the outline, imitate Jesus' attitude. Because verse 2 says, He endured the cross, and notice this phrase, scorning its shame. Just say those three words over in your mind. Scorning its shame. Scorning the shame. What is it? (laughs) So there's something that you've got before you, something that you've got to do that according to the world is shameful, is worthy of ridicule. In Jesus' case, it's the cross. But he scorns the shame. If one scorns a thing, one normally has nothing to do with it. But scorning its shame means rather that Jesus thought so little of the pain and shame involved that he didn't bother to avoid it, he endured it. Scorning the shame means despising the shame. Despising the world, despising the fact that we're despised by the world. And friends, this should be our attitude toward the world. And all that's opposed to Jesus, we scorn its shame. We should, like Moses in chapter 11 of Hebrews, in verse 26, we should, quote, regard disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because we're looking ahead to our reward. And having endured with joyful defiance, verse 2 says, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
And those two words, he sat down, are written in Greek in what's called the, the perfect tense. It points to an action that has an enduring result. Thanks be to God because of all of what's said in the New Testament and in particular in the 11 chapters of the book of Hebrews about the work of Jesus Christ. You have a full explanation of the fact that his work is finished. It's done. He completed it, but it has enduring results. The work of atonement, of dying on the cross for our sins is ended, but it has enduring results. Christ is at the right hand of God forever now. The work of atonement has ended in glory, and friends, our work will end in glory as well. So we should imitate Jesus' endurance. We should imitate his attitude, and I say in the outline, we imitate his confidence. Because verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured, he held up, he bore up under the difficult circumstances of his path marked out for him. We are called to do the same by looking to his example, but looking ultimately to him as the end of our path. But consider his confidence. He endured opposition from sinners. And as you consider his confidence that it's worth it, that it will work, That it will ultimately work out in his glory and our glory. He had complete confidence in that. And because he was confident of what he had seen before him, he did what he was called to do. Now, back when Annie, one of my two daughters, was little, she used to, she was of our two girls, she was the one that was given to melancholy sometimes. I mean, she would be sad, and Daddy had to cheer her up. And so sometimes I would cheer her up just by doing silly stuff, and we've got lots of stories we could share with you of all the silly stuff I did to cheer Annie up. But those conversations would turn serious sometimes. And I remember one of those conversations where I was telling Annie, Annie, think about what God has ahead of you in your young life. And I say he's got high school ahead of you. He's got graduation, he's got marriage, probably children. Now let me just stop there. When I said that to her, the truth is I didn't know that any of those things would happen, did I? And so I had to qualify it. I said, that's the norm, that's the normal path. But I said, Annie, think about this. Whether those things are ha- happen or not, God has heaven ahead for you. God has heaven ahead for me. There's always something ahead of the Christian. Always. There is always not just something ahead, there's something good ahead, ultimately. And the bad stuff in between, the good that is ultimately seeing Jesus and being like Him at the end of the race, all of that in between is all part of the process of a good God doing this good thing in the lives of His people. Now the connection between Jesus' race and our race is not just we emulate what He did. Rather, it's this, friends, because He completed His race... Hear this. Because he completed his race, we will complete ours. 
That's why we've got to be connected to Jesus. Now, remember I said at the beginning, I talked about the director and the coach and the teacher. Jesus is all of those for the Christian race. (laughs) Because the director knows how the story goes, he can lead you in playing your part and win. Because the coach has played the game as Jesus has, he can see you to victory. Because the teacher has completed the course as Jesus has, he can prepare you to complete it. And remember, for everything that's going on in your life and every person who's played a role in your life and helped you to move along the path of the race that's marked out for you, Jesus is the one who made that person. He made the director and he made the coach and the teacher what they are. And so we should ask, isn't he amazing? Chapter 11 is Faith's Hall of Fame, as I've said. It tells us of all they accomplished by belief, by believing God's character, by believing God's promises. But finally, notice verse 2. It says that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So why do we, we look at him? Because he's the, the author of faith. The Greek word is archagos. He's the reason we have any faith. He gave it to us as a gift. He's the leader. He's the originator. He's the author. He's the pioneer. He's the one who has granted us faith out of his store. He too has faith. Jesus did as he walked the earth as exhibited in his attitude toward his father. Back in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says famously, without faith, without believing, it's impossible to please God. You can't please God, one commentator says, without believing him. But what Did God the Father say about Jesus, his son? We saw earlier, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And without faith, you can't please God. Jesus was one who believed his father, believed what his father had sent him to do, believed that it would be accomplished. And that's why he's the the author, the pioneer of our faith. It's also why he never sinned. I do what my father says. I do what the father shows me to do. I do what the father does. That was Jesus Life In his temptation, how did he respond? He always quoted scripture and he affirmed his trust in his father. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He took everything that God his father ever, ever said and he put his complete trust in that. His faith was so strong that he even sustained joy as he looked at the cross and its shame. From a human standpoint, he didn't want to go to the cross as we've said. But he believed his father would take him through the cross and out the other side. He believed that the shame would only be temporary, only for a little while. He believed God would take him through the cross, out the other side, out the other side of the grave and set him at the right hand in heaven. That's believing. That's faith that faces the crisis, the likes of which no other human being has ever faced except the Lord Jesus. And that's how great his belief, his faith was. He's the pioneer of faith, the author of faith, but he's also the perfecter, verse 2 says. And the word that's translated perfecter is one from which we get our word prototype of faith. It's a Greek word teleon that says it, it takes it to its completion. He's the perfect illustration of faith, perfect faith beginning to end, believing God totally in everything, He raised faith to its perfection. He established the highest example of faith. So he is the source of faith and he models it. So we look to 
Jesus. On May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister became the first man in history to run a mile in less than four minutes. Within two months, John Landy eclipsed that record by one and a half seconds. On August 7th of that year, the two met for an historic race. As they moved into the last lap, Landy held the lead. It looked as if he would win, but as he neared the finish, he was haunted by the question, where is Bannister? And as he turned to look, Bannister took the lead. And Landy later told a Time magazine reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. Friends, we don't look back. And we don't look to other things. And we don't look to other people. We look to the goal that is Jesus. Here's your take-home truth. What we see in Jesus' life and his work in others should motivate us to live as he did. Let's bow. Our Father, again, we thank you for gathering us, allowing us to open your word before us, to teach us, Lord, yes, to convict us, But, Lord, all in your good work in providing grace for the race. Thank you for putting us in the race. Thank you for what you're doing in and through us and for us, not to us, in the midst of the race that you've marked out for us. Oh, Lord, help us not to look away from you and to other things and other people. Lord, help us not to create our own path by disobeying you and changing those things that you have placed for your good purposes in our lives. Lord, help us not to blame other things and other people for our failure to run. You have called us to run. You have showed us how to run by faith, by believing in who you are and what you've promised to do. So help us as your people, as believers, to live accordingly. And as a result, Lord, May it redound to your glory, the purpose for which you have made us in all things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.